I've missed you. It's so nice to be back together again. I always look forward to this time we're actually going to be talking to each other instead of sending like a two-sentence message to each other on our work Slack. And also, I know during the time that we've been apart, we separately took actual vacations, which is such a rarity for both of us that I know I at least am feeling very rested and ready. Well, good, because we have a lot of work ahead of us. In the new season of The Envelope, we're wading through the deep, deep waters of Emmy season. And I don't know if you've noticed, Mark, but there's a lot of TV. Some would say now too much TV. And I know that I've said it here before, but I don't know how you all on the TV side make it work. I mean, I watch a lot of movies, but those are just a couple of hours. You have to watch now all these new series that have all these new episodes. (laughs) I don't know how you get through it all. It's why it takes me so long to respond to your slacks. (laughs) You know, it's a nice problem to have when there are such good performances to watch, which leads me to our guests. We're kicking things off in a big way with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Have you interviewed them before, Mark? You know, I have spoken separately to Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, and they are both incredible. And I can only imagine what a treat it was to talk to them together, but also a challenge and that you kind of just want to listen to them chat and not really do a proper interview. Oh, definitely. I felt like a third wheel, but in the best way. There was much to talk about. I mean, their show, Grace and Frankie, recently came to an end. And it was, you know, this comedy about the realities of aging and the depth of friendship and became Netflix's longest running series. For seven seasons, Jane and Lily delivered a masterclass in comedic banter. And it was the only buddy comedy I needed or wanted in life. Grace and Frankie was their first collaboration since 9 to 5, their groundbreaking 1980 film. And the finale was extra special because, spoiler alert, their very famous 9 to 5 co-star makes a surprise appearance when Grace and Frankie make a quick trip to heaven. Well, hi, girls. That's right. It's the legendary Dolly Parton. Oh, God. You look exactly how I knew you would. No, no, I'm not the Almighty. Hardly. I'm Agnes, just a working-class angel. Of course, I haven't had a promotion in 250 years, but the benefits are heaven. I just need to check your phone. Ladies, welcome to the envelope. Thank you. Nice to be here. There's so much to talk about, but I want to talk about Dolly. It's been a long time since 9 to 5, and here you all are together again. What was it like to film together? Like, did it feel like riding a bicycle? Oh, yeah, because we have, a, we have a very, you know, deep, resonant friendship that's lasted because it was a, a hallmark film for all of us. And uh, it just, so we really are old pals. We're showbiz pals. We, we all have the same kinds of lives every day and schedules and uh, and we truly love each other. I'm not sure anybody has a life that compares to Dolly's. I mean, that's a... I personally don't have an amusement park, but <laughs> I have a, a, an have interest in the merry-go-round at Griffith Park. And we didn't rebuild people's homes that had burned down around Dollywood. No, I didn't give a million dollars to Moderna. In fact, I'm going back and starting over again. I'm going <laughs> to devote my life to... You're going to devote your life to being like Dolly. Yeah, Well, I can't be like Dolly, 
but uh, I can I can try to emulate her more fully. And I try to emulate you. I mean, my God, I, I'm working with two of the most powerful, giving, fabulous women in the world. Well, that's very generous of you. I feel the same about you. Boy, I was so proud and moved to wit. It it moves me even to think no, about it, to witness her, no, her hand and foot ceremony the other day when she became cemented into Hollywood history. It was fabulous. It really was. Comedy is really hard. It's hard to make people laugh. And about 99% of comedians make people laugh at the expense of somebody. Never does Lily Tomlin make a joke at someone's expense. She is always fighting against any words or statements that would hurt someone's feelings. You know, if you, if you look... She spoke so beautifully about me, and I was so moved and, and, and amazed at the, the level she reached. She moved the whole audience just in a human way, a deeply human way. Well, what I said was she's been pushing me around for years and I was hoping her hands would get stuck in the cement. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> Golly, that just flew by. That just flew by. How has your relationship evolved through the years? I mean, to go from something like nine to five to this, you know, show Grace and Frankie and the two films you guys have coming up, like, how have you deepened that friendship? Well, it just, it deepens on its own, just automatically deepens, you know, especially because of the TV series. You know, you spend seven years starting at five in the morning with only a thin wall separating the two of you while you're getting your hair and makeup done. And uh, I can hear everything she says. And God, even at five, she's not only funny, but has her hair and makeup people in stitches, you know. I mean, you get to know each other pretty darn well because, you know, in a movie, it's it's a relatively short period of time and you can fake it, you know, and pretend to be a good person. But over seven years, if you're not really a good person, it shows. Yeah. And guess what? She's a good person. <laughs> you are. Uh, she's, I, I, I'm going to enlist her in my PR firm. You are real, <laughs> You are so wonderful, Jane. Um. There are plenty of shows that capture the nature of friendship in your teens, in your 20s, in your 30s, but there is something so tender and loving about seeing the emotional power and force of late-in-life friendship, like that kind of sisterhood. What did offering that depiction in Grace and Frankie mean for you? Uh, well, it's... Um... You see, you just moved me to tears with that 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 statement. It's um, I I'm going to be I I would try to be funny here just to wipe away, and I'd say something stupid like you know, of course you look at each other every day and wonder which of you is going to die first, uh, but I'm not going to say that. Uh <laughs> you know, I think when you're our age, you've had many friends who've passed, and so those who are still with you. Um, become even more precious. And women, on average, tend to live longer than men. Female friendship is very different than male friendship. You know, women look at each other 
eye to eye, heart to heart. We ask for help when we need it. We put our arms around each other and say, I'm hurting, I need help, help me. You know, there was a medical study done at Harvard that showed that women friendship, lack of women friendship was as bad for their health as smoking. So, you know, I think I'm going to live a long time because I have Lily as a friend. I love it. I love it. Well, Grace and Frankie delved into matters about growing older, you know, such as, you know, the feeling of being cast aside by society or the reality that funerals are now more frequent part of a person's calendar and, you know, female sexuality, these things we don't often see. This is our business plan. Very comprehensive, thoroughly proofread. (laughs) Vibrant. Spelled with a Y for extra fun. We make vibrators specifically designed for older women um, that take into account their all their issues like um, poor eyesight and arthritis. Tender vaginal tissue. That's uh, important. I let her say that. What are the lies that people tell about growing older? That you're over the hill. What they don't know is you go over the hill and then there's another hill and a lot of beautiful pasture, and then another hill. Well, I, I the first time I'm over the hill, I, I have a lovely, beautiful glen. I just, like, cavort with meaning. <laughs> I like that. Pur- purposefulness. Like that. When did you start confronting your age, and what were your anxieties about it? I've always been conscious of my age. You know, like when I turned 60, I was aware that it was the beginning of the third act and that it would be my last act. I can't change the width of the river that is my life, but I can change the depth and that I had to do that in this third act. Another thing that made me really conscious of my age is that after 60, I started noticing that I was so much happier, that I felt so much better. And I thought, God, am I a freak? Am I a unicorn? And then I started researching it. And I wrote a book about it. And the scientists don't totally understand. Some of it may be changes in the brain, but uh, less hostile, less anxiety-ridden, more apt to be willing to listen to other people's views, more open to differences, less judgmental. You separate the wheat from the chaff when you're older. You don't make mountains out of molehills. You know, you've been there, you've done that, you've survived it. I can go through it again. People don't understand how hard it is to be young. And it's important to let young people know that so they won't just feel they're the only ones to be older. Because when you're young, it's all about what am I supposed to do? Who am I? You know, who Mm -hmm. do I have Mm -hmm. to know? What effort do I have? Now it's like, eh, you know, you are who you are. Mm Mm-hmm. Lily, how, like for you, when was it that you started thinking about it? Were you ever someone that obsessed about it? No, I don't think so. I think in terms of uh, being an actress, you uh, are, you know, aware of your age. I mean, I think as a child, I was terribly aware of death, but not in a negative way. It was sort of, uh, I remember when I was a small child, I need a tissue so bad, Jane. My nose is running. Paul, could you bring me a tissue? We're in here crying. Yes. Anyway, so I, I mean, when I was a, a little child, maybe three or four or something, 
All our relatives still lived in the country. They milked and they were farmers. And, uh, and people would lay people out at home. Dead people would be laid out in their living room and all the neighbors would come and see them. And a little girl had died and she looked like a, uh, one of those fluffy dolls in a box. And I thought she looked so beautiful. So when I realized that my mother had also been a baby and a little girl, I began to realize that all the adults around me, my teachers, my parents, neighbors, they all had been babies, little babies. And so I knew they didn't know anything. Not They didn't really know anything beyond what any human can know in, in a fundamental way. And uh, it just sort of leveled the playing field. Mm-hmm. Well, even when it comes to narratives that, you know, feature people of a certain age, those stories often end with death. And what I so appreciated about this final stretch of episodes is, yes, Frankie is sort of preparing for her death after, you know, this psychic predicted it was imminent. Hey, girl. You stoned? No. I'm just staring into the abyss that was my life. This is my last painting. There's a moment in the finale where Frankie struggles to paint. And, you know, it's this lifelong hobby of hers. And the thought of losing her mental or physical capabilities is hard for her to face. How has giving space to those fears on a platform like this, like, helped your outlook on it? Like, helped you work through your own fears? Well, it, I don't know if it has helped me work through them. It just, uh, you know, makes me aware of them. Yeah. And I can deal with them anyway, but I am always, I'm very teary. I'm very easily moved to crying. And, uh, and if something moves season. me, it starts immediately. So that just shows that, that we did deal with incredibly um, important fundamental things. And they will reach most humans that way. And, what, and then, then there's very little we can do about it except live a good, productive life and do what we can for each other. I'm sorry to make you emotional, Lily. No, it's all right. I'm not, something... I'm not sad. I'm just moved. Yeah. Jane, I even remember when the show was first starting, you talked about how you had a, a little bit of a panic attack or a, a little bit of a breakdown because the story about Grace. The first, the first season, I had a, I think it was a mild nervous breakdown. I just hated it. I dreaded going to work. I was, it was really, really, really difficult. And at the end of the first season, I thought, well, either I'm going to quit again, because I've already left the business for 15 years, only I was younger. Now, if I quit, there's no going back. Or I see a shrink and figure out what it was. And I figured out what it was. It was because at the very beginning of that season, our husbands of 40 years tell us that they've fallen in love with each other and tend to get married and they're going to leave us. And abandonment is a big issue for me. And, you know, a lot of that first season had to do with dealing with that abandonment. And and that was at the root of it. After that first season, everything was great. 
Well, I mean, the character of Grace is someone who has lived most of her time sort of catering to the men in her life. And that is something that you've reflected on in your memoir, as well as the recent documentary about your life. How did playing Grace help you sort of reconcile that in your own life? How has she been a mirror to you? Well, I didn't need Grace to reconcile the man problem that I have had all my life. I had done that already. Um, one way I've done it is to remain single. <laughs> Just avoid it. <laughs> right. But it helped me play Grace because I totally understood, you know, that need to be approved of and loved by a man. And, you know, the feeling that you won't be loved unless you do what he wants and becomes who he wants you to be. I mean, I did that for most of my adult life. I understand it very well. And I sympathize with it. And then I got over it. <laughs> I think. <laughs> the way you guys talk about Grace and Frankie and the emotions that it sort of uh, elicits from you, like, was that last day on set emotional? I mean, it ends pretty quietly with you guys walking on the beach. But was that a hard sort of scene to do or, or because it's you guys, it was manageable? Well, the last scene that we shot, because, you know, when you're making a movie or a television, you don't necessarily shoot in order. The last scene we actually filmed was the scene in Frankie's art studio. What are you doing? Facing the hard part. My painting days are over. Not if I have anything to say about it. It was very emotional. When the final cut, you know, and it was over... Um, there was a lot of tears. I, I was ex very moved by something that happened. Lily, especially towards the end of the filming, you know, she would be involved in stuff. She was signing books or something like that. And she kept us all waiting. And we were waiting and it was already late and it was the last night. And I was screaming for her. And she was screaming back at me, and I kept screaming at her. And I said to the crew, I can scream at her because I love her. People, someone can only yell at her like that if they love her. And suddenly the entire crew was screaming at her. In other words, we love her too. I found that so moving that they did that spontaneously. More with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. And we're back. Let's pick things up where we left off with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. You've both been in the business for some time with this show now wrapped and, you know, you guys have other projects coming up like what strikes you about the roles available to women now compared to when you started your careers? I think that there's more opportunities for older women now than there were. I think it's opened up a lot. I think they've, and they're smart because, you know, older women is the largest growing demographic in the world. And so it makes sense to, you know, make things that are going to speak to us. What was the biggest surprise for us is that the cross-generational appeal of Grace and Frankie. We didn't expect that. But young kids, college kids, love the series too. Well, Grace and Frankie was 
the second time that you've collaborated, but you're working on two films together, moving on about two friends getting revenge on a widower who wronged them, and 80 for Brady, about a group of friends who traveled to the 2017 Super Bowl to see quarterback Tom Brady. What can you tell us about these films and what keeps you coming back together? Well, opportunity. We just, we just, people are tapping us together. And uh, anyway, so then that developed and, uh, and Rita and Sally Field came on board and we're all in our eighties, except Sally's really 75 and Rita's really 90, but collectively we have a, an age of 332, which is quite a lot. (laughs) Were either of you Tom Brady fans before this? Well, I'm a baseball gal. I'm not a football gal, but um, I also, I like good looking men and I admire, I mean, there's no question he's a genius. Uh, And so I admire his talent, but it's more how adorable he is. Yeah. He's very big. He's six foot four. You can't believe it. And he's so sweet. And we had fun. Yeah. He, he was, I had, I had a couple of scenes with him. He was very good. Hmm. How do you view this chapter of your career? Like, what do you want out of it at this stage? Just to go on. To go on. Out of it. I don't even think in those terms. I, I don't know. I have a lot of other things going on in my life. You know, what I want out of it is to end the climate crisis. And so, you know, I've started the Jane Fonda Climate Pact, and I think it's the most important thing I'll ever do in my life. We want to elect climate champions and get rid of the people who are elected to office who take money from the fossil fuel industry and block important legislation that would help avert the catastrophe. And you can go to janepacpac.com to help us out. To build off that, I mean, you've been an environmental activist since the 70s, but In recent years, you really have upped the ante with your activism. You moved temporarily to Washington, D.C. to organize a series of weekly protests, which is, as you said, called Fire Drill Fridays, to urge Congress to pass meaningful climate legislation. It wasn't aimed at Congress because we already knew that, you know, Congress is stalemated. No, it was aimed at American people. We have to move from being concerned and alarmed to taking action. And I was 82. I turned 82 in jail. A day before Jane Fonda's 82nd birthday, the two-time Academy Award-winning actress and longtime political activist was arrested for the fifth time, as she has been nearly every Friday in Washington, D.C., since she started Fire Drill Fridays in October. Demonstrators sang to her as she was taken outside. We're still doing fire drill Fridays, but people are paying attention. Right now, 70% of the American public are alarmed by the climate crisis. Lily came and got arrested with me. And Marta Kaufman and Howard, everybody came and got arrested. It was very moving. You know, I think a lot of people said, well, if that 82-year-old woman can do that, I can too. And people started coming from all over the country. What inspired you to escalate to that more direct sort of action? Naomi Klein's book called On Fire, 
The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. It's always books that change me, that create epiphanies, that make me change course. I I knew I'd been very, very depressed because I knew I wasn't doing enough. I knew I'd, I hadn't found a way to use my platform. And that book inspired me to move to D.C. I was at Jane's house in the afternoon. She announced to me, I'm, I'm going to go and live in D.C. Uh, for a while. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, Ted Sarandos if he can postponed Grace and Frankie for a year and all and, and it was just out of nowhere. What was your night in jail like with Lily? Well, Lily didn't go to jail. I just, I went to jail cuz I'd been arrested so many times and it was I'm white and I'm famous, so you know, how bad could they treat me? They weren't, you know, it was very different for some of the other people that were in there. Mhm. Well, I mean, both of you have also been active in fighting for LGBTQ rights for a long time, and recent months have really seen a rash of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and legislation. There are the don't say gay laws that forbid teachers from talking about sexual orientation or gender identity, and there are laws that, you know, make it a felony to provide certain kinds of health care to trans children. You both have spoken out for LGBTQ rights in the past what would your message be to lawmakers today? Oh my goodness! Be uh, it's it's the same. We've, you've got to get rid of those lawmakers, uh, all those people that stand in the way of progress and 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 equality. It's it's got to be done. I don't. It takes a long time to even oust one person. Jane, there was a, a video that circulated of you recently that, like, back from the 70s talking about this issue. Culturally, psychologically, economically, politically, uh, gays and lesbians are discriminated against. They are a very powerful movement, especially uh, in, in San Francisco. They don't need me, but... What is it even like seeing that after all these years of fighting, we're still at this place... It should not surprise us that we are still fighting these fights because it's about power and it's about greed. It's hard individually to make a real difference. These have to be policies that are put in place. And until we can elect people to office who are more humane, who love democracy and love human beings and love nature and the planet, we're going to be facing this. But we shouldn't give up because the fact is that we can make a difference. But we have to vote and we have to pay attention to make sure that the people we vote for are human and not mean or greedy and don't take money. The people who don't, they just don't care except they're about their own interests. The people, by and large, who succumb to that value. Yeah. But hope is a moral imperative. We cannot succumb to cynicism. And, well, there's nothing to be done, so I'm just going to live out my life in the most hedonistic way. No. Because I guarantee you, and I think about this a lot, because I think about death, when you get to your deathbed, if you haven't done the best you can to make things better, you're going to go out sad. We should think about how we want to go out and then live our life accordingly so that when we get to the end, we won't have regrets and we won't be sad because of what we didn't do. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Envelope. We did it, Mark. 
Hey, I think we've still got it. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts to get future episodes in your feed. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production in association with Neon Hum Media. It is produced by Hannah Harris-Green and Navani Otero and edited by Hiba Elorbani with help from Lauren Rapp. Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville. Neon Hum's production manager is Samantha Allison. Their executive producer is Shara Morris. Special thanks to my editor, Matt Brennan, as well as Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Seitz, and Sophie Chapp. Till next time, I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. Join us next week for an interview with Stranger Things actor David Harbour. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.